All right, if you've got something to take some notes with, I'd encourage you to take that out. We've been on this series uh, last week we started uh, called Sex, God's Gift. Now, I'll just say, you know, maybe, maybe you just walked in the room and, and you knew nothing about it. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, you're actually here. Uh, but I did send an email out a week and a half ago to everyone in our church and said, hey, this is what we're going to be talking about. This is the options that you have. If you have children, teenagers, whatever, here's some ways to think about it. If you didn't get the email, either we don't have your address or it's in your spam folder or you ignored it. Just saying. Like you say, oh, that's, I don't even know nothing about that. And it's in there. So uh, we sent you an email, give you a heads up. Last week we talked about, uh, we said that sex is God's gift. That's kind of the title of the series. Sex is God's gift. And so we've said basically this idea that the devil didn't create sex, people didn't create sex, Adam and Eve didn't create sex, God did. And so it was his gift, and last week we talked about the blessing uh, of sex. And so if you missed last week, I super encourage you to to go on our podcast and get that message. Uh, I guarantee you it's one of those days everybody left church and said, I'm so glad I was here and I didn't miss this. Now let me give you one caveat. It's not loaded on the podcast yet. (laughs) So if you go and it's not there, I know it's not there. Um, uh, Our folks who run that uh, area uh, all all died with the flu this week, and they've been resurrected just recently. And so they're back intact. uh, And uh, this week, you will get last week's message and this one uploaded. And so you can catch them both if you want to listen to this one again. We talked about the blessing of sex today. We're going to talk about... Uh, the brokenness of sex. And so uh, I feel, I feel uh, a lot of tension um, because every week I'm speaking to such a huge variety of people in, in, in the two services we do. You might not be aware of this, but inside this room are deeply committed Christians, people who you know eat, sleep, breathe, have gone all in. I'm a follower of Christ no matter what. That's it. We have people who are cultural Christians. In other words, you, you're kind of you kind of swept up in the fact that we live in an area of the country that Christianity's sort of uh, popular and been around a long time, and it's kind of what you do, and maybe you haven't gone much deeper than that. We have people who believe, believe there's a God, but maybe just aren't quite with Him now. And, and you might not know this, but from time to time, we have people who are self-professed atheists that visit our services. Uh, and I've actually had some conversations uh, with a few of them. They're very interesting. So uh, there's a huge variety. Beyond that, there's people from every generation in America in the room. And I'm just going to guess. I'm going to throw out a a wild number. I'm going to guess there's somewhere between 15 to 20 different ethnicities in our church. As far as I know, this is the most diverse, ethnically diverse church in Shelby County. So we have this huge variety of people. And I say, look, I feel the tension at least when we start to try to speak some kind of common language to get everybody on the same page so we can at least sort of, sort of start together. So I think you can agree this morning, whether you're a deeply committed Christian, an atheist, no matter what country you're from, I think we can all agree that we speak one common language, and this right here is one thing that will tie us together. Krispy Kreme donuts. Right? There's something about a Krispy Kreme donut. And it's got to be hot. Now. Right? They get the two favorites hot now. I, I, I didn't ever have a Krispy Kreme donut when I was a kid. I didn't know they existed. 
when I was uh, uh, out of college, as a matter of fact, uh, we were going by uh, in another city, and somebody said, hey, there's Christian, you know that we should go in and eat now. I said, what is that? They went, what is that? You don't know? No, is it? Oh, I've had donuts before. Oh, no, 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 no. They, they corrected me. You have not had a donut until you've had a Krispy Kreme donut. And they, and they were like praying and interceding. Let the sign be on hot now, hot now, hot now, hot now. And we pulled in and the hot now sign. I thought revival had broken out. I thought, are you kidding me? Hot now? And I went in and ate one. And can I just tell you? Like, I'm just going to tell you. They were right. So now I like pray when I go by one. Lord, hot now, hot now. There's something about it. And look, don't you dare tell me take it home and heat it up in the microwave and it's the same. It is not the same. Right? Is that right? It is not the same. You lie, you lie, you lie. I want that thing to shoot off the conveyor belt and I want the fewest seconds possible between that conveyor belt and my mouth. Just shoot it right in there like a baseball. And there's something about a cold glass of milk. Oh, right, yeah. Like you woke up finally, yeah. You, it's, I call it milk primer. You get about three hot now, you put them down your throat, and it prim- it's, uh, 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 I need something to drink, and you get this big old sweaty, ice-cold glass of milk. You can down a half gallon of milk after a good donut. Have you figured that out? I mean, they are there. Now look, some of you are sitting here, and you said, what does this have to do with anything? This isn't spiritual. Oh, oh yes it is. Most certainly. Look. God wants you to be whole. Do you see there's a circle that's unbroken? He wants to make your life whole. And do you notice what's in the middle? Nothing. He's not in there. He's been resurrected. It's empty. The middle's empty. Are you with me? And then Christianity's a process. They run down the little conveyor belt until they're baptized under the silky sugar cream that flows all over them. And then you put them in the box called the local church and they're sent out to reach the world. Somebody! Krispy Kreme donuts. You Jesus. So I was trying to think, wonder what the most number of Krispy Kreme donuts I've eaten at one time. Boy, they're good. So <clears throat> I was thinking, I remember, I remember eating them and, and it, you get a dozen. I, you just, I don't, you don't even ask. A dozen. I mean, I, do they even sell them in smaller quantities? Not that I'm aware of. Give you the box, you start eating them. I'm on like three. And, and my body is saying, stop. Like, stop. I can feel the veins in my head. Sugar is squirting through it. Stop. But my heart says, no, no, I think you can do more. Like, my heart is in this, right? My heart is saying, I think you can go on. And so I take a, a big gulp of milk. And you know, milk, I don't know what happens. You drink milk, you can eat another one. I don't know how that happens. It's like a tennis match. You just keep going, milk donut, milk donut, milk donut. And so I, some of you are going to laugh at me. You're going to say, you, you, you're, you know, you, you're weak. Uh, you're going to laugh at this. I think somewhere around six or seven, maybe eight, eight, nine. Okay, eight, probably not more than eight. I, I think I did. But, but it was making me think, I wonder how many of you have maybe eaten a lot of Krispy Kreme donuts. So I just want to take a little poll this morning. How many of you have eaten like six or more? In one setting, not in your life. Obviously, we're way over that. One setting. Look, hang on just a second. got to qualify. I'm not talking about Dunkin' Donuts. That don't count. You eat Dunkin' Donuts, you're from the north, and that doesn't count. Everybody in the south knows Krispy Kreme better. Let's do it again. Krispy Kreme donuts, hot now. Six or more. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, can I just tell you, you beat the first service? 
Uh, they don't get up. I don't know what happened. They're not awake yet. Dozen. Ooh, we got some pounders in here. Dozen. All right, all right. Eighteen. Eighteen. Come on, somebody. Wait a minute. Wait, I see that hand. All right, somebody else. Somebody else. Eighteen. Anybody else? Eighteen. Woo! Yeah, that, that, that's a, that'll shock your system, won't it? Look, I don't know who's eating the most, like in the world, but, but I did uh, do a little research and find out there's a guy named Jamie McDonald that ate, in nine minutes and 17 seconds, he ate 60 of them. I know, right? You just feel the shock in your body. You're like, I think I'm going to die five years sooner right now. 60 is a lot. Have you ever eaten something or eaten more of something than you should have? And you get that feeling when you're done like, oh, why did I do that? Your body's saying, don't do it. And your heart's saying, go, you can do it. You're the one. Keep going, right? You ever had that feeling? Now, that's funny how that kind of illustration plays into our message today. What it has to do with this topic of sex and brokenness. We've been talking about the circle of successful sex. Uh, and I'll put it on the screen again if you weren't here last week. You can see we've basically said the circle of successful sex is in, everything inside the circle is, is the plan that God has given us for a successful sex life, husband and wife. Everything outside the circle is, uh, let me say it this way, inside the circle is the blessing of sex. Outside the circle is where sexual brokenness starts. Or expresses itself. Everything outside the circle is outside what Jesus has given for us. So we live in a society today that's constantly calling us outside the circle. Now this is my opinion and I might be wrong. But my guess is we live in the time period in world history that's the easiest to live outside the circle. We have more pressure, more access, more opportunity, more everything around us. And it's easier to live outside the circle. Or let me say it another way, harder to stay inside the circle than ever before. I'm telling you, it is a fight. It is a struggle. And, 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 you know, maybe you're there saying, well, well, you know, no, it's not a struggle for me. And I'm sure you walked on water on the way here this morning. Probably healed a couple of dead people after service. It is a struggle to stay inside the circle because you are going against so many forces at play in our society today. Now, maybe you've been told this phrase before uh, or heard this phrase. Uh, you know, you just have to follow your heart. When it comes to relationships or sexuality or whatever, you just have to follow. How many of you heard that advice? You just have to follow your heart, right? Somebody says, should I date him? Should I date her? Well, you just have to follow your heart. Can, can I just uh, ask you, do you have any idea uh, what a terrible bit of advice that is? How terrible that is? Jeremiah 17.9 in the New American says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what you're saying when you say follow your heart is you're saying follow the most uh, uh, desperately sick and the source that has the greatest ability to deceive you. The source that has the greatest ability to mislead you. The thing that leads you towards self-deception the easiest, follow that. How many of you think that's a bad idea? I think that's a, I think that's a bad idea. When someone says follow your heart, that's what they're saying. So John chapter 8, we're going to look at a story of a woman who I think bought into this philosophy of just follow your heart. I think that was maybe perhaps what she was doing. She's a good example of this. And following her heart led her outside the circle 
of what God has defined as successful. So John chapter 8, verse 2, we're going to sort of walk through this story together this morning. So if you have a Bible uh, open there, just leave it there. At dawn he appeared, he is Jesus, uh, again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her, they made her stand up before the group. Now, very important, pay attention to the body language. They made her stand up in front of the whole group. Now, it's interesting to me that these are Pharisees and teachers of law and religious professionals, and notice how they're always trying to catch someone doing something wrong. Notice how they caught her. Have they been spying on her? Did they follow her? How did they catch her? I'd like to know that. How did you catch her? Were you minding your own business and it just happened? Or you've been seeking out other people's wrong? That's what I'd like to know. But religious people are always want to catch people doing wrong because it makes them feel better about doing right. That's called self-righteousness, just by the way. Verse 4. And, and so they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, just hold on for a second. In the act. Now, now this is very awkward. Like, like they, there's a lot of ways to catch people doing something wrong. You know, I, I read some text messages that you sent and, you know, they weren't appropriate. So I'm wondering, or, or I've been stalking you on Facebook and you've been posting some things that are questionable. Or how do you know her? How did y'all meet? Why did y'all interact that way? Why did you say that to her? Look, all that's over. Caught in the act. There are no questions left. All the questions are answered. I mean, that, this is a very awkward moment. And I've always asked this question. Maybe you thought it when you read it. Where's the guy at? Where's the man she was with? She's not caught in the act by herself. Was he one of their friends? Did they even know who he was? Or did they just let him off because he's a man? I mean, I mean, what was going on there? Why isn't he standing before the group about to be stoned to death the way she is? Where's he at? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I know this, one of the most damaging things to Christianity in all the world is not sinful people being sinful, but it's self-righteous people being self-righteous. That's one of the most damaging things to Christianity. Sinners need to repent, yes, but religious people need to repent of their religion and self-righteousness. Because it is damaging and it is harmful and we need to understand the ground at the cross is level and every one of us stand on the same plot of ground and every one of us, no matter what you've done or what you have not done, every one of us stand in the same need at the same spot. We need a gracious Savior who will die and resurrect and give His life for us, forgive us of our sin and extend grace to us that we don't deserve. There's nobody on earth that doesn't need that. And that's why self-righteousness in religion is so damaging. Verse 5. In the law, this is funny to me, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Isn't it funny that they're quoting Bible verses to Jesus? He's like the author. He wrote the book. You know you're religious. You know you're self-righteous. You know you're a Pharisee when you're quoting Scripture to God. In a corrective manner. Verse 6. They were using this question as a trap. Ah, the real reason comes out. In order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Notice that. They, they bring her and make her stand up in front of everybody. Jesus bends down. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, they didn't care about righteousness. 
And they didn't care about this woman. What they cared about is trapping Jesus. Because what they really cared most about is religion. And that's why you and I must refuse to be religious because religion produces death and religion kills people. But relationship with Jesus gives life and forgiveness and freedom. Very different things. Now, the reason Jesus' response is such a big deal is because too many times the church in America has rejected people and protested and screamed and thrown rocks at people with serious issues, at people who've stepped outside the circle. Instead of accepting them as people and having a conversation, too many times we've been caught screaming and throwing rocks and protesting and that kind of stuff. But can you imagine how this woman felt? I mean, put yourself in her shoes for a minute. Can you imagine how she felt? Have you ever been caught doing something wrong? Have you ever been caught doing something wrong? You ever got a speeding ticket? You ever got a speeding ticket? You ever got a speeding ticket? Look, you are terrible. You people, you got to slow down out there. <laughs> See, if you quit getting less tickets, you'd have money to donate to Blocktober parties. We'd have all the candy we needed. I'm driving the car, I see the blue lights behind me. Like a 44-year-old man, I still get like, God. And I know some of you, you've been praying. You see them lights, you say, oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. What kind of relationship with God is that? Oh, God, don't let them see me speeding. What? I want you to use your miraculous power to put a stealth inviso liner around my car so that policemen can't see me speeding. Whoa, really? You know you do it. Prayed. God, please, just this time, I won't ever speed again. Can you imagine how she felt? This is, this is a really serious thing. It's punishable by death. Now, the Pharisees weren't wrong about that. The law of Moses did say that. Their heart was wrong. But they weren't wrong about the information, which, by the way, is usually what Pharisees are best at. They get the information right, they get the heart wrong. And that's what happened here. This woman reminds me of uh, a story you probably familiar with, read in high school, The Scarlet Letter. Remember this story uh, by Nathaniel Hawthorne? It's about a lady who has a baby. She's not married. Nobody knows who the dad is. Uh, she gets caught. Nobody ever catches the dad, really. So she's got to wear this scarlet uh, letter on her uh, clothes. She's got to sew it on there. And so she walks around everywhere. She walks around this letter is on here for the whole world to see in order to bring her shame. I'm guilty. I can never forget my guilt. I can never wipe my guilt away. I, what I did was wrong, and the whole world's going to know. And now I'm identified by this shameful uh, sin. And, you know, maybe there's some people here this morning that you've never been caught physically, but maybe you've been caught spiritually. Maybe, maybe you're doing some things that you shouldn't be doing. Maybe you're outside the circle somewhere, and uh, maybe God's caught you. And you're spiritually caught, but you're not physically caught. And, and maybe God's been catching you and trying to say to you, I love you and I want to help you. But, but you have to come to some term over what's going on in your life, or there's no way for this to end. So I wanted to talk for a few minutes about some of the letters that we might be wearing on our heart this morning uh, 
so we can understand this woman in John chapter 8 a little bit better. Here's the first one. The first letter that we might be wearing is, uh, I just used the letter A that stands for adultery, same letter that she had. I can't prove this. Um, I haven't done the research. It's only a guess, but you'll probably agree with it. Uh, if you Google it long enough, you can make Google say anything you want. So we can find some numbers if we need them. I, my guess is affairs have gone up in the last 10 or 20 years. It, at least the uh, things swirling around my life seem to tell me that. The information, the uh, I would say there was a time... That, that some of us lived and maybe didn't know anybody personally who had ever stepped outside of the marriage circle like that and who had had an affair and uh, maybe we didn't know anyone. But I bet you if we polled everybody this morning, everybody in the room would know at least somebody. And so it feels like to me that uh, our society has become more, more broken and uh, permissive and more encouraging of that kind of activity, so I, I think it, it uh, goes up. And look, I think an affair always takes place emotionally before it does physically. The physical always follows the emotional, and so that's why a lot of these tamperings outside the circle are so dangerous because they're pathways, they're gateways that open the door. That's why the flirtation and the Facebook messaging and texting and all—I'm for all those mediums. I use all those mediums. But all those mediums leave us uh, vulnerable to building relationships inappropriately in a way that we, that we wouldn't have had 20 years ago. Uh, and so they're, they're all there. Uh, I remember when, uh, several years ago, a lady met with my wife and I, and she wanted to talk about her marriage. And so we met with her to talk. We thought she wanted help for her marriage. The longer we talked, the more obvious it became to us that her husband had some real sexual problems and um she she had stepped outside of the circle in order to resolve them and developed a relationship with another man and they had been dating something like two years and and uh we thought she wanted help so she said uh, she had taken this man to meet her family like at thanksgiving or something and she had kids and i thought oh my so i said what did your family say thinking just thinking that her family would say Hey, this is not good. Her family, she said, they like him. They like him. You're not 16 years old. It's not the prom date. Wasn't trying to check out if they like him. Are they? What's going on? So her family had told her okay. She had told herself okay. And I think the reason that she met with us is because she was thinking, if I can get one of God's people to say this is okay, then I've gotten confirmation on every level that what I'm doing is right. And so I said to her, I said, Hey, there, there's no way this can end well. You have to repent. Like, you have to ask God to forgive you. You have to break this relationship off. And, and you, ha you have to end this. And you have to end it now. You have to end it today. This is hurting your kids. It's hurting you. It's hurting your husband. It's hurting the guy you're with. It's wrong. It's wrong. You have to. And, like, she repeated the words, but she was not. She was not with it. And, and so I'm just saying there are examples all over society where we have more and more and more of this, uh, it seems as the years go by. So A is one letter. Here's the second one, P. And P just stands for uh, porn. Uh, pornography has really progressed. You know, it used to be magazines maybe that, that, that dirty old guys had or sketchy little shops that nobody knew what they were. Or the windows were all, you know, covered. Now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar 
industry. Uh, I, I read, it was either last week or two weeks ago, Playboy, uh, who I think is the, the, whatever, the leading magazine or whatever, the, the first one, biggest one, most money making, whatever it is. Playboy has decided that they've lost so many subscriptions to the magazine and their online, everything's growing, so they're shifting all their nudity and all that stuff to online. Because online's exploding and the magazine's going to kind of take a different course. I was reading this article and I was thinking, <coughs> because the access to online is so much faster, people can subscribe. There's the, the sort of the myth of privacy or whatever, and they can get quicker and easier access. But, but I'm telling you, it's an epidemic. Uh, it's a problem among men, and it's a growing problem among women. And the only way to really ever find freedom is confession. I'm not saying... Uh, I'm not saying like this lady in John chapter 8, you have to stand in a circle of people who hate you and want to kill you. That's not what I'm saying at all. But confession, because you have to tell somebody you need help because this sin and many sins have a secret component to them and, and keeping them a secret is what keeps them growing. When you bring light to the problem in an appropriate way, it, it begins to lose some of its grip and I know that's a humiliating thing to do, but it's not nearly as difficult as what's going to happen when you get caught. Because you will get caught. Like, that's, that's the problem with all secret sin. All secret sin lies to you and says you'll never get caught. And the truth is, you will get caught. You always get caught. You're going to get caught. And it's going to be much less damaging if you come out in an appropriate way and bring that to light yourself. I know it's a battle. I know it's a fight. Uh, but look... If you're stepping outside the circle, you're dealing with some level of guilt because pornography always overpromises and underdelivers. It cannot deliver what it promises. There may be hundreds of problems with pornography. Let me give you two. And because in our society, I think it's I think we live in a time where it's become so normalized that every voice you hear from culture says it's normal, it's healthy, it's what guys do, it's part of life, get over it, grow up, quit being a little kid. Uh, but let me just give you two problems with pornography in case the other hundred aren't enough. One is it destroys intimacy. So I want you to think about this for a minute. The circle of successful sex, we said, is husband and wife, husband and wife, husband and wife. But when you begin to introduce pornography, now you are being lured away from her to be with somebody else that doesn't even exist. You are being drug away. So, so this introduction of this thing into your life has moved you outside the circle, and rather than drawing you closer to her, it's dragging you further from her, from your wife. So it ruins, it messes up intimacy. Instead of wanting to be with her more, you want to be with her less. The other problem is it devalues women. Women are objectified. Women become methods. Women become mechanisms. Women become a means to an end. And now here's what I want you to understand. Anything that dehumanizes someone then gives you the right to treat them in an inhumane way. Are you with me? So if, so if I objectify a person, whatever, in this case it's a woman, if I objectify a woman and I use her and I use her and I use her and she's only there to, to do something for me, she's not a real person, she doesn't have a soul, she doesn't have needs, in fact she's not even human, then I can justify any treatment of her that I want, which by the way is where the, uh, the, the ancient world lived for centuries, which is why women had no rights and children had no rights. 
So I'm just saying to you, it's, it's a bad, bad, bad deal. It destroys intimacy and it devays. Now look, I can, like it's very tense right now, isn't it? <laughs> it's okay to laugh. It's okay to breathe. Krispy Kreme donuts. Krispy Kreme donuts. It's very tense. All right, let me move on to something uh, a lot less controversial. G, G stands for gay. That was a joke. This is not less controversial. This is actually more controversial. Look, I'm not going to make any political statements because I'm not a politician and I'm not running for nothing and I don't want to be a politician. And I'm not mad at politicians. Uh, but people say, why does the church talk about this so much? And my experience is the church isn't talking about it hardly at all. It's the political process and the political parties that have pushed it to the forefront, and the church is expected then either given two options. Either you toe the line on political correctness or be quiet. But I can't see that the church has been given another choice, at least in, in contemporary thought. But Christians who have a strong scriptural opinion, if they speak up, they're accused of hate crimes and intolerance. Now, here's what I'm just going to ask you to do. I'm going to say some very controversial things, and I'm going to ask you to extend to me tolerance. Here's what tolerance is. You and I sit down together. We have a conversation. We both say what we want to say in a respectful way. When we're both done at the end, even if we disagree, we still respect each other enough to treat each other like humans. That's tolerance. Tolerance is not, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. That's not tolerance. So I want to say some very controversial things. Remember what I said this morning? There's so many different people in the room. There's no way we're all going to agree. I'm just asking you to hear me out. If you're here this morning and you, you are gay or you battle with uh, same-sex attraction, the very first thing I want you to know, and by the way, there are people here. Uh, some people think they're not. There are people here that battle with same-sex attraction or may even be practicing gay. I want to say this to you right up front. I, I can't tell you how glad I am you're here. I can't tell you how glad I am that you came today, that you, you thought this was a place that you were welcome. You thought this was a, a place for you to, to come and be together. I, I'm glad you're here. I'm super glad you're here. Yes, that's good. That's a good thing. Second thing is, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at anybody. And I don't hate you. I don't hate anybody. Jesus delivered me from hate. I used to hate people. That's what, a, that's what a non-Christian is. I don't hate people. I don't hate you. I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody of any race. I don't hate anybody of any gender. I just don't know any people that I hate. I don't hate people. I, and I don't know how I would stand before God with a heart of integrity and hate anybody. And I, and I want to go a step further and say, I apologize to you uh, for, for the way you may have been treated in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I can't imagine what it has felt like to be you. I can't imagine some of the things that you've been through. I can't imagine what it must feel like to have that battle and to try to reconcile it. If you're here, you're trying to reconcile that battle with faith or I don't think you'd be here. So I can't imagine what it would be like to try to reconcile those desires that you have with faith. I can't imagine. I, I, I don't pretend to understand. And I'm saying to you, I understand that I don't understand. And I don't know what that would feel like. And I apologize uh, for anyone who's condemned you, or there's probably times <coughs> you felt like this woman standing in the circle, a bunch of religious people around you about to pound you to death with rocks. And, and if that's ever happened to you, I apologize to you. At the same time, I'll also tell you that, that living a gay lifestyle, I keep referring to the circle, 
is outside the circle. A gay lifestyle is outside the circle of successful sex that, that God himself has given to us. Uh, so I say that because I believe in Jesus and I believe that he has greater plans for your life. I don't say that because I hate you. I don't say that because I'm mad at you. I don't say that because I'm running for office. And even if you don't agree with that, I still hope you come next Sunday. I would love for you to be here next Sunday and finish the series with us. Look, I don't agree with our government. I don't agree with our pop culture. And I don't agree with the judges that made the decision about gay relationships. Why don't I agree? What would be my basis of not agreeing? <coughs> I don't agree because I'm Christian. Now, let me explain that for a minute. I don't agree because I'm Christian. I can hear the voices coming back. Are you saying? Because I've seen people on TV. I've seen them on the Internet. I've seen Christians and pastors and churches and leaders who all say gay relationships are good and healthy and normal and approved by God. Are you saying, what are you saying? Well, I only have two answers to that. One is those Christians and leaders and pastors and groups are the extreme minority. And they're all recent. Like none of them have, have held that stance for 100 years or 50 years or 40 years or 30 years. They're all recent. And they are living in a culture that is pressured them that way. So follow this thought for a second. I don't know an exception. I don't know any church leader on earth that lives in a culture that disagrees with gay relationships who's championing the cause of gay relationships. Now, why do you think that is? I think it is because we're responding and being pressured by the culture around us and, and not, not sharing what we're obligated to share. So it seems like the culture is leading the church in some ways. Now, here's the second thing I would say. All the pastors and leaders and denominations or groups that, that say gay relationships are normal and healthy and God-approved, I would just simply say I disagree with them. And so does most of Christianity. And what I mean by most of Christianity, now look, I'm pulling this number out of my ear. It's not scientific, but I think when you hear it, you'll agree with it. What I say most of Christianity, 99% of all Christians on earth who have ever lived on earth, Christians and churches, have said gay relationships are outside the circle. Huge majority. So here's what I'm just simply suggesting. I do not believe that we found a new enlightenment. I do not believe that we live in a culture as sexually broken as ours is. We have trafficking, we have pedophiles, we have affairs, we have adultery, we have sexual sins of every version and every color and every stripe you can imagine. I don't think a culture that's gone sexually broken is capable of coming up with a new God-given insight into sexuality. I, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. So... I think we're just looking for a way to affirm what we do not understand. Now, before you throw Christianity away, let me give you a couple of thoughts from my life that might help you. I didn't grow up, uh, I was taught Christianity, but I didn't grow up necessarily as a Christian. I went to church. But I didn't, I didn't have a life-changing relationship with Jesus until I was almost 16. And I had a lot of wrong thinking in my head. I thought a lot of wrong things about a lot of things. And I'm not going to tell you all of them. But I had a lot of them. My brain had to be re-engineered as a believer. So here's why I think if you struggle with same-sex attraction, 
or, or something like that. I, I, think, I think Christianity is your friend. I don't think it's your enemy. I think there may be Christians like these Pharisees that were the enemy of this woman that might be your enemy. But Jesus wasn't her enemy. And I don't think Jesus is your enemy and I don't think Christianity is your enemy. Here's what Christianity did for me. When I was uh, younger, I, ster- I tended to stereotype gay people. I'm just confessing to you. I'm embarrassed to say it. I'm embarrassing myself in front of you. And I'm confessing to you. I used to stereotype people. I thought they were all sissies. That's what I thought. Jesus changed that. I, I, I would have never, I'm confessing to you, I would have never allowed a gay person in my life. Never. Jesus changed that. I have people in my life who struggle with same-sex attraction. No problem. When I was younger, I made fun of gay people and I I called them names and I made gay jokes. And I bet you a lot of people in the room did too. And I'm just saying, I was wrong. And I'm sorry. And I, I should have never done any of those things. And even as a young Christian who I knew I was called to ministry, these words came out of my mouth and I'm so embarrassed they came out of my mouth, but they did. I remember as a young teenager called to ministry, knowing I was called to ministry, saying this out loud. I can never minister to a gay person. I can minister to anybody else, but I can't minister to a gay person. I'm not called to that ministry. And can I just tell you, Jesus changed that. He changed that. I was wrong. I'm telling you I was wrong. And I oversimplified the issue of same-sex attraction. I used to think that everybody who had same-sex attraction came from highly dysfunctional homes. I think that's generally the truth, and statistics will prove that out. But it's not always true. I know people personally who come from a healthy, functional, Christian, godly, sexually appropriate family where there's not any problems you would think of and somehow today they or their children battle with same-sex attraction. What causes that? I oversimplified the issue. And if you struggle with that, I, I can only say to you, I'm sorry, but watch, watch, watch this. It wasn't a political party that helped me. It wasn't the, the, the gay community that helped me. It wasn't having a broader mind that helped me. It wasn't politics that helped me. It wasn't any of those things that helped me. In fact, that made it worse. Jesus helped me. Christianity helped me. Understanding a God of infinite and unconditional love who would not pick up a rock and throw it at a person who was caught in sin That's who helped my heart, set me free of hatred and prejudice and all of those things. So I'm just saying to you, Jesus and Jesus' people are your friend. They are not your enemy. Let me wrap up with this. I know we're we're running later today. So many other things I wanted to talk about. Let me finish the story. Okay. So there's adultery, pornography, gay issues, abortion. There's a lot of things we could talk about. A lot of letters that could be sewn on people's hearts this morning. (coughs) When Jesus was in this circle, and these Pharisees had drugged this woman into the circle and made her stand there, they're going to throw rocks at her and kill her. She deserves judgment. What do you say, Jesus? They didn't care about her. They didn't care about the law. They didn't care about righteousness. And they didn't care about Jesus. They just wanted to kill Kill. They wanted him to decide so they could trap him. Jesus ignores them. 
And he kneels down and he writes in the sand. Now, I've been so fascinated by what he wrote. Anybody ever wonder what he wrote? I've been so, I like all my, I want to get to heaven. I want to say, what did you write? I've been wondering what he wrote. Now, the Bible says he was in the temple, would be Herod's temple, which would mean that the floor would be made of stone. Now, your Bible may say that he wrote in the dust. You're in the middle of the desert, so even if it's stone floor, it's got dust on it. Okay? So he's writing in the dust, on stone, something. Look at his posture. They dragged this broken woman straight from, from uh, uh, the act of adultery. They make her stand up in front of these men. And they're going to kill her. And what does Jesus do? They said, what do you say about this? He kneels before her and he starts to write. He's not standing there. He kneels. Now, they, if you read the story, I don't have time. They say a few more things. He stands up and he talks back to them. And then the Bible says in John 8, he kneels back down again and starts talking to her. not judging her he's not condemning her forget what he wrote look at the posture what's his body language say Exodus says that God with his own finger wrote on tablets of stone the ten commandments one of those commandments would have said do not commit adultery the same God takes the same finger and he's writing on stone again. And what is he saying to her and what is he saying to us? Those commandments that I gave you were not to curse you, were not to judge you. They were to bless you. I'm writing those things on those tablets because inside the circle is blessing and outside the circle is brokenness. And this is what he's saying to her. So he looks at the guys and he says, Hey, whoever didn't sin, whoever hadn't eaten too much Krispy Kreme donuts, I want you to throw the first rock at her. All the rocks hit the ground, they walk away. Jesus looks at her and says, Now where are your accusers? She said, They're gone. He says, Listen, <coughs> neither do I condemn you. This commandment that God wrote with his finger wasn't written to condemn. This story wasn't given to condemn. I kneel before you. I love you. I want to redeem you. I want to bless you. And this circle is given for your blessing. Sex is given for a blessing, not a curse. But when it is misused, it provides great brokenness. So he says, neither I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, <clears throat> last thought. Let me tell you the difference in condemnation and conviction. Everybody in this room, including me, gets condemnation and conviction confused sometimes. If we're God's children, we will experience conviction. Conviction is what, is what we feel about what we're doing right now. Condemnation is what we feel about what we did in the past, and we can't do nothing about it now. Conviction says, I'm sleeping with a person right now I'm not married to. That's what I feel if I'm outside the circle. Condemnation says, I slept with a person. I went outside the circle. That's a long time ago, but I still feel bad about it today. How many of you have ever said with your own mouth, I can't forgive myself about anything? How many of you have ever said, I've said it. I just can't 
forgive myself. I can't let myself go on this. You know what that is? That's condemnation. It is not conviction. Condemnation says I deserve punishment and I'm going to give it to myself until I'm done. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. It's over. It's in the past. Move on. You're free. I'm pretty sure if Jesus isn't going to condemn you, you ought not to condemn yourself. Maybe you heard something this morning and you said, when I heard it, I felt condemned. Somebody has to have the right to tell you when you're wrong if it's better for you. And that's what God does. He tells us when we're wrong, when it's better for us. And God will only point out what's wrong because He loves us. Now maybe you say, look, I step outside the circle. I, I do, maybe a lot. Maybe I, you built a house. Maybe you vacation outside the circle. See, I don't feel nothing. Then, then what I would say to you is that I'm not sure you're a Christian. I'm not sure you have a relationship with God because God will always convict His children of what produces brokenness. And He will convict us of what blesses us. So would you just stand with me this morning? At some point, we have to let go of condemnation and we have to walk into freedom. Every eye closed. I, I, I know I'm keeping you, but I won't keep you long. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come quickly. Nobody looking around. Unless you just have to go. Some of our Blocktober party leaders are making their way to the foyer so they can be ready for you. But unless you just have to go, would you just stay for a minute? I just want to pray for you. If you're here today and you say, I've got brokenness, I've got shame, I've got problems, I've got... Maybe it's something that happened in your life 20 years ago and you say, I can't forgive myself. Man, I just want to say to you in Jesus' name, that is not conviction, it is condemnation. And God calls you this morning to forgiveness and to healing and to let go. Maybe something was done to you. Maybe you're outside the circle right now. And it's time for you to just take a step and say, this has got to end and I can't end it alone. If I could, it would already be over. So every eye closed, what you feel in your heart right now is conviction. Nobody here to condemn you. I'm not, I didn't come to condemn you. God doesn't condemn you. Jesus kneels before you this morning and says, neither do I condemn Every eye closed. If you say, I need prayer today. You don't have to define it. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to embarrass yourself. I'm not, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I don't want any shame. Say, this morning, I need prayer. Would you just lift your hand and say, pray for me. I need prayer today. I need forgiveness. I need freedom. I need to let go of some stuff. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Looking in the balcony, just lift your hand and say, I, I got some stuff that's got to go. I got some stuff that's got to go. Come on, just lift your hand up. Just lift that hand of freedom and say, it's got to go. It's got to go. If you don't start now, when are you going to start? What's your plan on starting? If it's not today, what is it? Is it just get out of here and then I'll deal with it later? You, later's a lie. Later never comes. Just lift a hand and say, it's got to go. It's got to go. And I saw a lot of hands. Here's what I'm going to do. <coughs> I'm going to pray with you. And I'm going to dismiss everybody. 
And if you want to pray with somebody, if you lifted that hand or you didn't, and you say, today, I just need to come into agreement with somebody that healing and forgiveness and whatever needs to happen is going to happen. I need to take that step. You're convicted. I can't call you. I can't convict you, but God can. If He's doing that, I just want you to stay behind and find one of the prayer team when you feel comfortable. The prayer team's going to stay at the front for a few minutes. Worship team's going to say, when I let everybody go, I just want you to hang and I want you to deal with this. Lord, I love you today. I thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy. You are a God of peace and favor. You are a God of great strength and restoration and healing. I pray today that you would let that amazing grace that we sang about flow over our lives. Forgive and heal and restore. Make marriages and relationships and homes and families and individuals and singles and young singles and older singles. Lord, make us strong and make us the people you called us to be. By your grace, we will become it. Mighty day. If you need to be dismissed, you can be. God bless you. Thank you for coming. If you need prayer, our prayer team.